You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you to join me. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone that will get you access to a Bible, there's a paperback Bible in the, in the chair, uh, underneath the chair in front of you. And, uh, and so I want to invite you to open, uh, open that Bible with me to the 102nd Psalm. So if you open a paper Bible, you'll find the Psalms in the middle. There's 150 of them in the middle of the Bible. They're the prayer book, the, the, the song book, the hymn book of the Bible, the language of prayer, the poetic language of faith. And we're in the 102nd Psalm. And so I'll give you kind of a a, a quick little crash course on why we do this. Uh, There are many different reasons we've given over the last couple of weeks, but I'll I'll highlight one. And that is, you'll find in Ephesians chapter 5, as the Apostle Paul is encouraging the New Testament church, he's talking to them about getting to know one another better, living as children beloved by God. Not, Not abstractly loved, but loved by God such that they know that the love of God has been visible to them because he has sent his son to die for them and to take his place, such that now we, are, we call God Father. And so he outlines in the first 20 verses of Ephesians 5 what it looks like to do that, to, to confess sin to one another, because now we're safe, right? In the church, I know for many of this isn't the case and this isn't your story, but I'm inviting you to consider a mystery, but in the church among God's people, we're safe. Because we are known fully by God and received, we begin to experience that kind of grace with one another. And so we can bring what's in the dark to the light so that Christ will shine on it. And as he encourages these people to, to carry on, he, the Apostle Paul says, then make it a habit to encourage and build one another up using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so as we open the scripture here, we're doing that. We're simply building one another up by reflecting on the language of faith, the prayer book of the Bible. In fact, the book of the Bible that's quoted the most by the New Testament writers, including Jesus himself. And so I'm going to read to you uh, Psalm 102, and uh, I'll give you a, a, a quick background so that some of the language that comes out will make more sense. You'll see kind of a sandwich The beginning and the end will be an individual lament. That is, the the psalmist is crying out to God for help. Traditionally, some some Christian traditions have included this in one of the seven penitential psalms. Now, it it, it fits that kind of strangely because it doesn't specifically mention sin that's been committed, but it does mention, as you'll see, and it'll kind of jump out, that the the things that they're enduring are a part of God's discipline upon them. And so in the middle of that sandwich, you'll see a declaration of a confidence in God and his ability to restore God's people. So pay close attention to the, to I think the motif of this psalm, which we'll spend the majority of our time kind of reflecting upon, and that is the nature of time. So here we go. The inscription that would have been the first verse of the the psalm originally is now the the description a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the lord hear my prayer o lord let my cry come to you do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like 
smoke. And my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem His praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment you will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. When was the greatest time, the greatest moment in your life? We'll zoom out even further. When would you say has been the greatest time in the story of your own family? Zoom out further. When is the greatest time, past, present, or future, in the story of the United States? Keep zooming out. When's the greatest time to be alive ever? When was the greatest moment 
And I want to contend to you that as you reflect upon the nature of time and the nature of God and the nature of seasons as they come and go and the nature of time as it is sometimes very difficult and sometimes great, this psalm teaches us to see our own lives in light of the unchangeable and internal and eternal nature of God. So I want to contend for you the nature of this psalm is to draw out for you and me our consideration. Consider your life in light of the eternal and unchangeable nature of God. In our time together, I want you to hold those two things side by side. Your life, all that it is, all its good, all its bad, all its highs and lows, all the blessings and curses that come along with being you. And I want you to hold it right up against the eternal and unchangeable nature of God. You can kind of nerd out with me is that one of the doctrines of the historical Christian church is the doctrine of the immutability of God. That is the unchangeable nature of God. God cannot, does not, will not change. God never changes. And if you'll notice, right as a, as a theme that's smack dab from the middle to the end of this psalm, you see the psalmist leading by confession, leading in this poetic description of his experience, of his present circumstance, you and I into a consideration of our own present life, and in this case, even how difficult, frail, and fleeting it really is, and the unchangeable and eternal nature of God. You'll even see, as a comparison in the last few verses, not just, uh, not just the, uh, our own lives next to the eternal and unchangeable nature of God, but even all of nature and creation, the, the galaxies, the universe, the mountains, the stars, all of these things next to the eternal and unchangeable nature of God. So consider your life, all that it is, and consider it next to His immutability. I believe that His immutability, His unchangeable nature, like the psalmist says here, is a source for comfort, regardless of where you are. Now, that even may be the case that if you're in this room, and as we, we walk through these psalms of lament, over a third of these psalms, uh, these, these poetic expressions of faith in the Old Testament we find here, are lament proper. That is, they're crying out to God. But up to over two-thirds of those psalms include at least some part of lament. Now, that, that may not mean much for you, but I, I try to draw attention to this every single time uh, we come across such a thing. But I, I, I think we're so we're tempted, and I, I know our own tendency, I've kind of seen this as like when we have difficulty, our first inclination is to either minimize it, it's not that bad, someone else always has it worse, uh, or that you need to somehow get over it because the problem you have is not a big deal. And there, neither of those things are true. But the Psalms are included here by the inspiration of God's Spirit so that you and I would know that despair and sorrow is a part of living in a sinful, broken, and fallen world. And at no moment in the midst of our despair is God surprised. And God, in His mercy, is, is drawing us into this. So, if you're in this room and this, the language of this Psalm hits very close to home, it, it, maybe it'll be hard to think about it so thick. Or if you're in this room, and this is the greatest week of your entire life. If so, praise God. Store up this language. Store up this language of lament for when things will not be as good as they were for you this week. Consider your life in light of the eternal and unchangeable nature of God. 
the fact that he is consistent over all of history is a source of deep comfort for us. Now, that being said, what we find here in the first 11 verses is a lament that's painful and difficult to read, was it not? And then a turn, verse 12, you see that, but you, what a, what a profound turn. Like, my life is miserable here all the ways, but you, O Lord, you, O Lord. And then, and then there's a description for the next several verses, all the way to verse 22, about the trustworthiness of God to restore his people. And then 23, he goes back into kind of this personal lament, but, but reflects as he's closing up the psalm about some hope that he anticipates might exist, if not for him, but at least in some sort of future sense. And as such, we're invited to see our present suffering and sorrow in light of the unchangeable nature of God. That being said, I want to admit to you, I am not very good at this. And so there are parts of this sermon that will be like, I think he might be making it up as he goes. Yeah, that's a fact. And so I hope you'll just simply join me. Uh, my own history in the Psalms is how the Lord has used the Psalms with very gritty, real, earthy, authentic language uh, to understand what it is that's going on. And if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. One of the most compelling attributes of the Psalms and the most compelling attributes of the Scripture is that there is no other, I have, there is no other book that describes more honestly what life is really like. There is none. And so I want to invite you to, to see just how honest the Bible is and as we believe that the Lord has inspired this kind of honesty so that we would know that we are not abandoned. So, first 11 verses. He begins in the first couple of verses, hear me, let my cry come to you, don't hide your face. Now, that, remember that, that, that language of being before the face of God is, is the language of relationship, of intimacy with God. Hear me, incline your ear to me. And then starting in verse 3, he starts to describe his life in, turn of it, in, in terms of its brevity. Now, if you want to, this fits in with the other psalms. Uh, one of the most uh, meaningful, impactful psalms for me was Psalm 103, the very next psalm. They're deeply connected. And one of the themes you'll see there, and I encourage you to meditate on 102, 103, and 104 this week, but I preached on this seven years ago. I kind of reflected on this. And one of the most powerful uh, images in Psalm 103 is this language of human beings being like grass, that is that in verse 15 of 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and then it is gone and its place knows it no more. Um, I love grass. Um, one, my dream is one day, I mean, I, I, we moved into a house that the grass has struggled and this is a rough year for grass and lawns and it's an American phenomenon to like grass. I don't, maybe I like just golf and that kind of a thing. But one day my dream is to walk across my yard barefooted, right? You, you know, you're like, you know what I'm talking about. Like when you have the spiny weeds and lumps and break your ankle kind of stuff. Like not yet. I'm not there yet. One day, maybe, probably never. But, uh, but one day I aspire to this. And in and, and one sense, like I, I have a I have a flawed view of grass uh, in that I value it more than I should. And that's a, that's a very Western and American thing to do. Lawns are, are, are almost exclusively unique, unique to Western American architecture and city planning. Um, and you're seeing even now they're kind of like, hey, you guys notice this is using all of our water that we need to drink and they're having to like change their mind about this. Um, and on the other hand, though, you can kind of see in that an analogy. It's difficult 
It is difficult. Just look around our city. Praise God for rain, but all the grass is yellow, and weeds, which work better in difficult circumstances, boom, they're like, hey, I'm ready. That's fine. You, you know, and they're popping up everywhere. And the psalmist says, that's what we're like. That's what we're like. We're fragile. We live but a season. That's it. It comes and it goes. It stays green for, for, for you know, just a, a twinkling of an eye, and then it's gone. And so he says, my days are like smoke, he says, something that's just fleeting. Verse 4, and my heart is struck down like withered grass. Do you hear the language of time there? I'm like a puff of smoke. I'm like embers in a furnace that are flickering and going out. And my heart is like grass. And then he describes his situation with some pretty profound descriptions. Did you hear that? His soul is downtrodden. He feels struck down. He doesn't eat. He's like a desert owl. Did you hear this? Like lonely and isolated. He lies awake like a lonely sparrow. He, he is sleepless. He feels isolated. He feels taunted and excluded from his friends and family. So just stop for a minute. Think about his description of his, his circumstances. And some of these will sound incredibly, incredibly familiar for some of you. Do you hear what he says? Sleepless, isolated, despairing of life, loss of appetite. Friends, those are the those are the symptoms of clinical depression. Now, on one hand, I, I want to contend for some of you, that's just what life is like when you see it as it really is. When you see the world as it really is, despair is the right, circum like it's the right response. When you see it for what it is, the, the way that sin frustrates and destroys things, despair is the right response. But just for a minute, look, look at this. Like, he's, he is describing being at the bottom. He is describing an existence that I know many of you know all too well. I eat ashes like bread. But he's described in verse 10 something that we're introduced to consider here is it's because of your indignation and anger. Now, this means that uh, scholars think that this psalm is probably from the exile. It's it's long after the, the people have rebelled against God in the promised land, and as, as a result of God's discipline on them, they're scattered and exiled to Babylon and, and even scattered around the ends of the earth. And so that, that kind of language of, uh, of as, as I said a minute, it, it, that language of confessing that this is some sort of discipline invites us to consider a category that there are lots of bad things that happen in the world. Some bad things happen because someone did something awful to you. And some bad things happen, frankly, because you did something foolish and brought suffering on yourself. A wise person will be able to know the difference. But there's also some difficult things that, and this is the language of faith, some awful things that you and I endure are a result of God allowing us to endure them. And the psalmist has a deep faith, a faith that I, 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 I'm not there 100% of the time. I don't expect you to be there either but the kind of faith that at least looks and sees what God might be doing, what God might be accomplishing in difficulty. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away. Again, hear that word, like grass. Verse 12, here's the turn, but you. So he's setting up a comparison like I invited you to do for yourself. Hey, I'm like grass. I'm like smoke. 
I, I'm like someone who's perishing. Now, some, of the, some other scholars think that it's possible this person was experiencing um, suffering from some sort of illness that was taking his life. We don't know for sure because even at the end, he doesn't describe it, but in verse 24, when he starts to cry out to God, he, verse 23 and 24, it's like, he's like, God, you, you've broken me mid-course. You're cutting in on my life. My life should have been going longer. But you, I'm fleeting. I'm like a shadow. I'm like grass, but you are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will ultimately arise and have pity on your people. You will have favor upon them. Now look what he's doing. When help seems far away, the psalmist invites you and I to consider our lives compared to him. Consider, reflect upon, when help seems far away, our relationship to time and God's relationship to time. There are two parts of this. The first one's going to stink. I apologize, but, but the psalmist invites us to do it. So here we are. Consider how short, small, and inconsequential your life really is. Now, I know many of you maybe have just more upbeat and optimistic temperament. This will be difficult. Praise God for you. You are like Barnabas. You encourage us when we need you to encourage us. I'm, I, I'm grateful for you. And yet I want you to, to join me here and the psalmist inviting you. Stop for just a minute and think just how short your life is, how small it is, and how inconsequential it is. And now do it even with respect to time. There is a good chance in 100 years no one will remember or speak of any of the people in this room. And if you think, whoa, okay, cool, 500 years, 1,000 years. It, it, is, it is a pretty sure bet that no one 1,000 years from now will be quoting any of us or remember any of us. Consider that for just a moment. Just consider that for a moment. And now consider all the billions of people who have walked the earth that are just the same. You don't know their names. You've never heard of them. Like the next Psalm, 103, tells us, they aren't even remembered. They're not even considered. The psalmist says, my days are coming to an end. They're like smoke. They're like grass. And I, I, I promise you, this seems like a, maybe it seems like an unhelpful exercise, but Here's, here's what I know. There are many in this room that are better at this than the rest of us because this is actually closer for you. For whatever reason, the last weeks, months, years, I don't know, you are more, you are more intimately aware of your own frailty and the shortness of your own life. Now, elsewhere in the Psalms, we actually believe that's a wisdom. That's a kind of wisdom that the rest of us who don't have, that's a folly to not think that. But consider for a moment how short, small, and inconsequential your life really is. That's what the psalmist does in the first 11 verses here. And notice his response, or as he turns, but you, O Lord. Our temptation in this particular thing is, is to just simply say, well, things are not that bad. And I want to just point it out because that is a false comfort. There are lots of like counterfeit comforts when you are considering how short you are, or how, uh, maybe that. <laughs> oh, Best Freudian short joke ever. 
Uh, <laughs> I won't be able to recover from that. When you think about how short and inconsequential your life is, you will be tempted to look to counterfeit comforts. You will, and, and your friends will help you, right? This is, this is the language of Job, right? His friends come and say things that are true, but not helpful, not really summarizing the situation. Hey, it's not that bad, or hey, maybe there's something you can do about it. That might all be true, and yet that's not what the psalmist invites us to do here. The psalmist invites us to consider the kind of despair that can only be comforted, that can only be cured by verse 12, turning to and considering the Lord. So it's over. I I, I don't know how long the stopwatch was going, but now consider how eternal and unchangeable God is. Just stop for a minute and consider that. Again, weigh it against, like, no one's going to know you or me in a thousand years, unless something weird happens, right? In which case, cool, I'm glad we were friends. Remember me, when you get famous and big, remember we were friends, okay? Right? In a thousand years, no one will know who you are. A thousand years ago, you you can't name many people who were wandering around the earth a a thousand years ago. You might maybe name a few, because some teacher made you read them or something, right? Two thousand years before, you, you you can't name many people. Consider now how these are unknown, mysterious, fleeting, and now weigh them against how eternal and unchangeable God is. So much so that you see at the very end, the things that we think are the most eternal, the foundations of the earth, the heavens, that's the picture of this, uh, it carries with this this idea of, of the galaxies, the stars, those are the oldest, most eternal thing that we can think of. We've had to create units to talk about them. We describe certain stars in, and distance, with, and we call them like, they are so-and-so light years away. Like, we're not even looking at what that star looks like. We're looking at what it looked like when light first left it and made it here. We don't even know what that star looks like now. It will be another thousand or billion years before. Do you get the idea? And even that, did you hear how it's described? That is like a garment that God will change. That's like socks that wear holes in it. He's like, okay, I'll get a new pair. Consider how eternal and unchangeable God really is. Now again, if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, these seem like, these seem like, like fairy tales. I, I, I'm really glad you're here, but even you know there's something in you that longs to be more than you really are. Even you know how awful you feel when someone tries to diminish you or dismiss you, right? If someone tries to just summarize you by, oh, well, they're just a fill in the blank, and you're like, well, I'm more than that, right? Like if someone just says, oh, he's so-and-so, that's his job, or she's so-and-so, she's it, right? And, 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 and in those moments, you, even you feel indignation, like I'm, I'm more than that. And I want you to consider the possibility that's, a, that's actually the nature of our creator shining forth in us, that eternal nature in us. There's something in us that's like, I don't want to be this small. And it comes from the eternal and unchangeable nature of God. Consider these things side by side. You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Verse 13, you're going to rise and have pity. I may not make it, but I know what you will do. Your servants are weeping over these things like stones and dust, and you know it. And yet you will do something that ultimately the nations will see. They will observe and worship your name. Even to the point where the things we think are the hardest, most difficult, like the foundations of the earth, the mountains, as it were, even those things are nothing compared to your age and timelessness. 
hold those two things side by side. Friend, when you are in despair, and I'll say when you, when I am in despair, you can send this right back to me. I hope you will. I hope you'll remind me as well. Let us consider our despair and think of it alongside the eternal and unchangeable nature of God. So here's some couple, here's a couple things I think that are, as we kind of as we kind of put all these things together, this lament and this de- declaration of God's ability to restore, we see what we're like and we see what God is like side by side. And I think there's some applications here for us to consider. One, consider his purpose and mission in the world and your life. Now, there are several themes here, but at least one of those is something we, we talked about in the last couple of Psalms, and I'll tell you why. It's in verse 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord. The kings of the earth will fear your glory. So remember what I told you, I kind of gave you like a, as a, as like a compulsion to, to think seriously about this. I said that about 30% of the Psalms are 100% lament, top to bottom, and up to 70% of the Psalms include some lament. Well, here's, here's another way to think about it. 63 times in the Psalms, the word nations is found. 43 more times, the word peoples is found. And you'll, you see both of them are here. The nations are mentioned. The nations, let this be recorded uh, for a, a generation so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. People you haven't even thought of, that he looked down from his holy height from the heaven and the Lord looked in the earth to hear the groans of his prisoners. That what? That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when what? The peoples will gather together. So same math. That means that a full half of the Psalms, more than half, even up to two-thirds of the Psalms, are spoken about the nations or the peoples. Consider God's purpose, his mission in the world and in your life. What God is doing in and through you. Now, now get this, like, if, this is, if we were going to write this psalm selfishly, narcissistically, we would be like, God deliver me so that, I don't know, so that I would just stop being in pain, right? God get me out of this so that this would be over. And what does he say? Ultimately, God, you are the one who rises and has pity. You hear these people. Why? Verse 15, because nations will fear you on account of this. The kings and kingdoms of the earth will fear and glorify you. So that, verse 21, I will declare the name of Zion, or declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and the peoples and the kingdoms will worship the Lord. Let me just reflect on that for a moment with us. You, did you hear that? Have a story. You have a story to tell. And so I'll give you just some, I don't know, applications very briefly in light light of this. The thing that God is doing, his purpose in the world and in your life is for his glory and for the joy of all peoples. Globally and masterfully, there's a, there's a book I commend to you written in the early 90s that changed my life, and the kind of the epitome of it is the first quote, for the very first sentence of the first page, and, and it goes something like this, that like, mission exists because praise does not. That is, mission, you and I, the, when I say mission, I mean our purpose in jumping in on God's mission in the world that he would be known, our mission to declare the good news of Jesus, the hope he has for us, and if you're in the room and you're not a believer, this is why we keep doing this, because we want to invite you in. We used to be the nations, we used to be the peoples, but now we are, instead of being no one, we are someone, we are now a part of it. So, we, so as now a part of God's family, we are inviting as many people as we possibly can into it. 
And so, as long as there are people who are, do you hear this? They're not, as verse 15 says, fearing the name, the good name of the righteous Lord. And as long as there are peoples who have not gathered to experience the grace that we have found in Christ, then our purpose is not completed. You and I have a story to tell. And so we're going to continue to do that. Now, here's, here's how this functionally uh, works out for us. Um, this is, I'm, I'm going to kind of deviate from here. This is a practical application, I hope, for, uh, for this room full of people. Uh, I shared a while back a picture, um, a picture of the, uh, of, I, I should have screenshotted this one as well this morning, but um, the parking lot behind me, directly behind me, is right now full. Some of you came in later, sitting toward the back, hey, what's up? I'm sorry, you probably had to park like three blocks away. I love you, I apologize for that. Uh, God has blessed us with a gathering of people that is too big for the parking lot. And so one of the things that I've asked our church for the last year to consider is, I don't know when this will happen in the future, but one of the things that you and I, I believe, need to do is to consider the possibility of, as our mission to multiply, is multiply Sunday morning worship services, either at the peak of this time, which will be, so on, on average, uh, this is uh, over the last like 10 years throwing out COVID, because what was that? Um, on average, we tend to bubble from, from our summer attendance, which is fairly low or lower statistically, because you and I are on vacation enjoying all sorts of beautiful things. Praise God for that. Um, and, and that frees up some spots in the parking lot. But it balloons about 25%. And so given the people here, there are 25% uh, more people that will likely be here from September to, uh, September to October. Lord willing, this might not change, right? Who, who knows what's going to happen, but let's, let's presume that we should be good stewards given the past and learn from it, right? And then in the spring, it will be a good 35% of, of what's here. Now, for those of you sitting in the back who had no parking spots, you'll be like, you should tell the rest of them, hey, that's not cool, man. Um, because after all, uh, Avera, our neighbor across the street, has been so gracious to us. And there are over 20-some cars every single Sunday from people who serve who shuttle across to make room for us to be able to park in the parking lot, which is still full. That being said, if Avera changes their mind or if Cars for Sale change their mind, they're like, no, you can't park in our lot anymore. Well, this whole story about September, October is over, and it's right now. Hey, look, we need to multiply the two services. We're going to make room for people. Here's why that's important. We are on the verge of turning people away. We are on the verge of not having space for people to hear the good news of Jesus that you and I are hearing right now. That breaks my heart. Because I don't know if you've seen um, lately in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in our city, our city needs what you have. Our city has dark and hopeless places that need to hear your story. And so here's what I've contended for. Um, I have no desire to be, uh, to be a celebrity. That's not worth giving my life to, and you shouldn't give your life to it either. I have no desire to be just another cool show in town. That is, I mean, there's churches that do that really well. Praise God for them. Uh, we don't want to be that. We want to be about what this psalm says. We want to be about those who are far off being drawn near in Christ. Those who are now living in hopelessness and darkness, being invited by you to hear the good news of Jesus. And again, over, uh, over half to two-thirds of the psalms reflect on this and invite us to consider this. So friend, you have a story to tell, but here's my encouragement. I want, I, if, if we're going to go to two services, our culture will change. It will, it will, it will cause, there will be lots of sacrifices you and I will have to make. I'll have to preach twice 
Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I haven't done that in a really long time. I'm struggling with one. Uh, so let's, let's, like, let's just assume this is all going to cost us in some way, shape, or form. But here's what it means. I want you to invite your unbelieving friends to hear the gospel. In fact, if you're not going to, then this will be a waste of time. It will be an, I wouldn't ask you to sacrifice. And so what are we doing? This psalm tells us that if we're going to do that, if we're going to, if we're going to do that well, we're going to have to consider God's purpose in the world, in his city, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and in your family. And we have to consider how that is true in your own life. Consider that what God is doing, even now in your despair, right? You might just be in the first 11 verses of the psalm right now. And you'd just be happy to get out. But look why he does it. Verse 21, he's going to hear the cries of his people, so what? That the groans of the prisoners, excuse me, he's going to hear the groans of his prisoners, that they, the people who are far off, will what? Declare the name of the Lord. They'll be gathered together into his eternal family. So friend, this is one of the temptations that comes when I said, hey, share this good news of your story with people. I wanna, this is the, the temptation to most of us is that you think, I can't tell someone about Jesus because my life is a mess. And I want to tell you the opposite. You need to tell your friends about Jesus because your life is a mess. And so look at what this psalm invites us to do. And I'll just give you, this is the practical tip. Invite people into your mess. When I say invite your friends to hear the gospel or invite your friend to an opportunity to, hear, to share the good news of Jesus with them, all of you think about you. <laughs> you think about all the messed up, stu- messed up stuff about you and how maybe you're disqualified or maybe no one will hear you. And you can think of all the reasons why that's not possible. I don't really know the answers to the questions I wish I had. And notice that's, that's exactly the place the psalm brings us. Invite people into the first 11 verses. And say, look, this is what my life is like. And this, held right up against the mercy of God, this is what my unchangeable God is like. Come with me. So friend, you're, you're in despair because you wish you were a perfect example and you had all the answers. And I just want to kind of crush your spirit for just a moment. You were ne- we don't need you to be a perfect example and have all the answers to all the questions. Otherwise, we'd need to write songs about you. We already have that guy. His name's Jesus. Our job is to simply tell about him. And so I know, I'm a know-it-all as well. I wish I, I, wish I was more. I wish I, I, wish I, would, I wish I wasn't in the first 11 verses. right? I, I wish I could invite people into, man, my life is amazing. Come follow Jesus with me. That would be a lie. And so, friend, if you're in the first 11 verses, stop for a moment and consider God's purpose in it. God will be glorified in the way that you are currently suffering. Did you hear down to the detail? He said people are mourning over the stones and the dust of Jerusalem. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know the, like, the pulverized dust and broken places in your life. But friend, invite, your, invite, invite the people you know into your mess. Because God, I don't know how, but God is going to be glorified by the way you endure that. He knows about the dust. That's why this verse is in here. He knows the places in your life that are crushed and pulverized. He is not unaware. He has a plan beyond that. Consider his purpose and his mission in the world to the nations. Consider also then our sure and eternal hope. 
as you invite people into your mess, not to be the hero, but that you have been introduced to the hero. Different passages of Scripture like this get easier to explain in a time like this because the New Testament explains them for us. And so if you want to, you can join me in Hebrews chapter 1, but I'll give you a crash course in Hebrews just briefly. And I'll, because what you'll find in Hebrews chapter 1, at the very, like verses 10 through 12, he quotes the very end of this psalm. He quotes the end of it. Verse 8, uh, he begins this quotation. But if you, in a crash course of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews is this, in New Testament, uh, we don't know who wrote it, it's, it's likely a sermon. It's this kind of exposition of Old Testament, of the Old Testament, that Christians would understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. He is the good, bestest, awesomest, right? It's just the superlatives are piled on Jesus. And he starts by, by sharing with us that Jesus is the most amazing thing. He's even better than other spiritual beings, as if to kind of compel people around them, like, oh, is he like an angel? No, he's better than angels. And so in verse 7, he's like, of the angels, he says this. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says this. And then he quotes Psalm 45, very similar to the next quotation, because beginning in, in verse 13, he says, and which the angel, at the very, into which the angels he has never said. So in between verse 8 and verse 12, or 8 and 13, is a quotation that doesn't apply to angels. You're meant to see, well, Jesus is bigger and better than even angels. That sounds amazing. I've never even seen an angel. That sounds pretty awesome. Every time an angel shows up in the Bible, someone has to go like, do not fear, because they freak out, which is what you and I would do. And so he says, he starts to quote this. It says, but of the Son, he says, now down to verse 10, you, Lord, uh, or, I'll, I'll just read it to us then. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond our companions. So he's quoting Psalm 45 there. And what's he saying? He's saying that Psalm is actually about Jesus. Ultimately, the, the thing that is anointed forever and ever is Jesus. And then he goes on to quote our Psalm that we've been reflecting on today. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Now, this is the part where you can read out of verse 25 in the psalm you have open, or you can read out of Hebrews chapter 1. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Notice the beauty of this. You and I have likely in the midst of the first 11 verses in our distress, looked to and looked for solutions that unfortunately are temporary and they don't last. And many of you, you are, you are in this room feeling the negative effects of hoping in, trusting in, looking for comfort and joy in something that has let you down. And while that is deeply disorienting, the scripture says that's exactly what will happen. That's, that, that's exactly what God in his kindness would allow you to do. To hope in and to trust in something that fails. Even if it's a good thing. Your youth. I know some of you, not that won't fail. You're right. Never mind. We'll talk later, right? Success. The affection and attention of another. A relationship. A job your team, all of these ways that we think we can get to the good life. And the book of Hebrews comes along and says, like, the hopelessness that comes from trying to be satisfied in that is because it's just as temporary as you. 
What you need is something better and lasting. And he says to you and to me, that better and lasting thing is Jesus. And you can trust in the unchangeable and immutable, in this case, eternal God, because the eternal and unchangeable thing about him, Hebrews tells us, is Jesus. This word forever is, isn't found that often in the New Testament. It's used differently, but it's really found in Revelation, which makes sense because it's the end. But it's found a dozen times in Hebrews. And one of them we just read, but he starts to talk about how Jesus now is our advocate. He is, our, he is the one who advocates for you and for me, even praying forever for us. So chapter 5, he says, he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now he gives a picture of a kind of an, a, a mysterious priest that shows up in the, book of, in the book of Genesis. I encourage you to Google Melchizedek today. It's pretty fun. Um, you're going to find a whole lot of theories about him. But the idea is that like, this, this was pointing to Jesus. The priest forever, the advocate forever, the one that gives us comfort forever is Jesus. Next chapter, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest, hear that word again, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, you see this multiple times in the same chapter. He is without father or mother or genealogy, this is Melchizedek, having neither beginning or days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest, forever. Do you get it? The thing that the psalmist was talking about, the way that we find sure hope and comfort in the midst of our fleeting and difficult life is to anchor ourselves, to stand upon something that is not fleeting, that is forever, and that forever is Jesus. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So finally, the climax in the book of Hebrews, he says, Jesus Christ is what? The same yesterday, today, and forever. Friend, might you consider the possibility that Jesus, as he tells us in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. Your fleeting and short life was never bent, meant to be the foundation of the universe. His. His was. And you and I can have comfort even in the despair of our own fleeting life because we know that our sorrow and suffering does not get the last word. Jesus does. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This means that the ultimate fulfillment of all of our longings in the past, present, and future are in Jesus. Remember that moment I asked you to contemplate the greatest moment the greatest time in your life, the greatest time in history. The writer of Hebrews, telling us about the psalm that we've just meditated upon, says that the time that is the greatest is the time that is inhabited by Jesus. Look at the last verses of Psalm 102. Where does this come from? It's pointed to. He says, you're going to change these eternal things. You're the same. Verse 28 the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Did you, hear, did you hear what he said? At the very beginning, he said that it seems like your face is not in front of me, but that language before you, verse 28, is the language of the face. It seems like I'm not in your presence, but I know that even, even beyond me, the generation beyond me, the people who serve you, your people, will never be abandoned. And so look at the last promise in verse 28 there. 
I told you to consider your own life and to consider God's. Now consider that God is infinitely committed to being present with his people. You can trust in his infiniteness because what he has done that never changes in Christ is offered for you and for me. He is committed to be before us. We're that people. We're that nations. We're those peoples. Consider for just a moment that even in this room, this book was written thousands of years ago in another language. And the eternal nature of God and his mission and purpose is that he would bring this good news across continents and oceans, translate it to English for a bunch of people who need to get more sun compared to the people who originally read this, right? And now we get to glory in it. The evidence of this promise is true by your presence in this room. You are the far-off peoples God has shed his love on eternally. You are the people in this room. You're the peoples and nations that are now living because of Christ before. We are the offspring. So friend, whatever limits there may be in our own life and our own pleasure, there are no limits on God's life. This is what he is like. This is what he is doing. Consider the possibility that the eternal hope on which your life can rest has been freely offered to you and to me in Jesus. Cry out to God because this life is short, but the eternal God will hear. Cry out to God. Lament. Is your life awful? Is it fit in the first 11 verses? Friend, meditate on that knowing that the God of the universe hears the, even the dust and rocks that are crushed in your own life. And some of us are closer to the end of our days, as we see here in verse 23, than the rest of us. You glorify God. You glorify God in the way that you look upon and rest upon the eternal nature of his work for us and his son. How can you know that God is permanently committed to you? The writer of Hebrews updates the story for us. This story is ultimately about one who would come. One who would come and cry out to God. And from the cross would cry out saying, God, don't shorten my life. Don't let this happen. The psalm is pointing to another one who would come along, who would enter in like grass and flitter away with his friends when he needed them the most did not only didn't remember him they betrayed and abandoned him and yet what through him the nations have come to know the grace of the lord when it seems like help is far off reflect on god's relationship to time consider that god is infinitely committed to being with and for his people his immutability is our source of comfort Consider the shortness of our own life and yet the eternal nature of God's love for us in Christ. It's overwhelming for us, but not to him. Consider our own sin, how it's overwhelming to us, but simply a part of his purpose to bring glory to himself. The proof? The resurrection. I told you about the sandwich, didn't I? There's like this individual lament at the beginning and the end. And in the middle of the sandwich is this declaration of divine truth and God's sovereignty. Juxtaposed here is the fleeting nature of our own lives like grass and the eternal nature of God's mercy for us in Christ. And they're sandwiched together and it feels weird, right? Some scholars even think that maybe they, they like combined two, two of these psalms together to make one. 
But the other option is that's exactly what the gospel is. That the eternal and immutable God of the universe, out of love, justice, and mercy, became finite, mortal, so that you and I would know that we are not abandoned. The immutable and eternal nature of God was sandwiched, clothed in, the Philippians tells us, was emptied into the very flesh like yours and mine, tempted in every way, but without sin, so that you and I would know that the immutable and unchangeable God can be trusted. Because he's not up there and out there, but he's with us, he's with us and for us. Consider that the God of the universe is infinitely committed to being present with his people. And how do we know? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The immutable God who came to be finite and weak, just like you and I, to demonstrate that not even the cross, right, think the first 11 verses, can stop God's mission to bring joy to his people. Let's pray together and thank God that that's true for us in Jesus. Thank you so much, dear Lord, that you have ordained the steps uh, in our own lives. Uh, Lord, that's a mystery that's beyond our comprehension. Even as I say it, it seems it seems beyond my ability certainly to explain. Thank you, Lord, that you and your goodness have not left us, but you have come to be with us in Christ. Thank you uh, that we are not without hope. So, Lord, I, I want to invite even now the people in this room to, to consider mysteries. I know many in this room uh, feel the weight of the first 11 and the last five verses of this psalm. They feel, they feel the weight and frailty of their own life the symptoms of sleeplessness, of loss of appetite, of loneliness and isolation. Those, are, those aren't stories about a psalmist thousands of years ago. That's, that's this week for them. And so, Lord, would you draw near for them? Would you draw near to them and give them comfort? And if that's you in this room, if, if you feel the weight of the despair of life, would you, in an act of bold faith, faith ask, ask God to comfort you? Ask God to draw near to you. Ask him that he would do exactly what he promises in the last verse, that he would be with his children. I know for the rest of us, maybe, maybe this despair isn't what we really experience, but we see it. Might we consider the possibility that even the difficulties that are in life are meant to just simply be a backdrop for what you're bringing about? Be glorified in our suffering. Be glorified in your redemptive work. May the nations, our neighbors, may the peoples, our friends and family, be recipients of this story that we are invited to tell. Help us now to declare this story of your mercy, of what we have now received in Christ in song. It's in Jesus' name and in Christ that we receive all these gifts. Amen.